Today we are continuing our summer sermon series, One Another, and we are going to wrap that up next week. And then on September 7th, you guys are in for a treat because James Johnson will be preaching while Lexi and I are out of town that weekend. So make sure you plan on being here. That's two weeks from today, as I believe God has given James something special for us. He kind of talked me through his sermon, and I think it's going to be really neat. Very different than the way that I preach, which is good. But uh, I want to share a story with you guys. I will never forget a particular instance when I was in group prayer. And uh, I'm going to have to give you some details so you can kind of appreciate the fullness of this story. Um, And I'll kind of get to those in a second. But uh, I was a freshman in college at UT, and I was at our freshman... We're praying for the person on our left. So we begin praying, and I think it was probably third or fourth person to pray was Casey, who would later become my best friend in college. It was his turn to pray, and he began his prayer like this. Dear Lord, I just want to pray for... And then there was this long pregnant pause, and he whispered under, kind of hoping the rest of us wouldn't hear. He's like, hey bro, what's your name again? And the person on his left that he had forgotten their name was our friend Lance, like I said, who would also be one of our best friends and at that point was a good friend. So he forgot the name of one of his best friends in college in the middle of prayer. And I'll tell you this, for about five minutes, we didn't do anything but laugh. Like we could not calm ourselves down because of how, I mean, he just felt so embarrassed and it was, it was just classic. But, uh, you know, thankfully God has a sense of humor and I think he probably was laughing with us that night, and it's, it's not a big deal, you know, to forget somebody's name. It's funny, but it's not really a big deal. But I share that because today we're going to be talking about prayer, and, and while you and I may not have a problem remembering somebody's name when we pray, my guess is that if you're anything like me, prayer is often a difficult thing for you. It's not something that is just easy. Um, I think one of the most common struggles when it comes to prayer is knowing how to pray. Sometimes we find it hard to know what to say or how to say it. And if we're honest, I think if sometimes we we feel like prayer has to be done this particular way and it has to be orderly and, and perfect or something, and the Bible doesn't really communicate that. If you read the book of Psalms, what you see is that prayer doesn't have to be hard it really is, is simply communicating with God. It's just talking with God about the things that are on your heart. It's just a conversation. You don't have to you know, go into some mode where you start using words that you never use in everyday life. You don't have to, 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 to take particular postures, although that can be helpful. It can be helpful to kneel. It can be helpful to do things like that. You don't have to do that. 
If prayer is just talking to God, what I believe is that the most important question we can answer when it comes to prayer is, how does God want us to pray? How does God want us to pray? And that's what I want to talk about today. So we're going to look at James 5, 13 through 18 today. We were in chapter 4 last week, and today we're in chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And if you need a Bible, there should be a blue copy of the ESV there in front of you on the back of the pew, so you can grab that. James is at the back of the Bible after Hebrews, pretty close to the end before you get to Revelation and all that. And so I'll give you a second to turn there, but what we're going to see today as we look at James 5, 13 through 18 is that there are at least three things we know in this, from this text about how God wants us to pray. There's at least three things that we'll, we'll learn about how we can pray in a way that, that would please the Lord. And so I want to I pray for us as we, as we begin our, our time together, and then we'll stand as we read the scriptures. So let's pray. God, I am so excited about the opportunity that I have week after week to, to teach and preach from your word. And Lord, I just pray that today um, would be a time that you would really use this this time use me to communicate your truth to us, to come and be with us by the power of your spirit, because we need you. Life is hard, life is difficult, we are all facing all kinds of different things, and we need to hear from you today. We're not here out of obligation, we're not here out of just, you know, it's what we do on a Sunday morning. We are here to hear from you, and so I ask that you would speak. I ask that you would use my mouth and use my mind, to communicate your words and only your words. Anything that I would say that is of me today, Lord, I pray that you would help us discard that. But I pray that everything from you would be clear and that it would stick in our minds and in our hearts and you would use it to, to communicate who you are to us because we need to know you more than we need anything else. And so we ask that you would take this time, be with us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pray, or let's stand and, and uh, read this together. This is James chapter 5. We're beginning in verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right, you can take a seat. So James begins with a question. He says, is anyone among you suffering? And the word suffering here refers to a a bunch of different types of difficulty, and it would include things like physical suffering or illness, emotional difficulty, financial difficulties, death of a family member, and and other other difficulties. It's a a general word. So don't think of it just as, uh, as physical suffering, though it does include that. But James says, if, if you're suffering in any way, if anyone is suffering, let him pray. 
If we're hurting, if we're struggling, James says, cry out to God. Tell him about it. He cares. And then James asks another question. He says, is anyone cheerful? And if you're reading the NIV, I think the way they translate this is, is anyone happy? And I want to want to be careful that we don't misunderstand this. He's not talking about people who are in positive external circumstances and things just happen to, to be going well in their life, although it might seem like that because that would be kind of the opposite of suffering. But what he is saying is if anybody is in a place where they have joy, where they have inner peace despite what's going on, he says, let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. So his point, I believe, is this. When you're doing well, don't forget that everything good, even the inter- and especially an internal state of joy or peace in the midst of whatever difficulties you're facing, comes from God, and he deserves praise, and he deserves honor and recognition for giving you that. Don't forget that everything you have comes from him. And I don't know about you, I think the reason why James is careful to say that is because if you're like me, when things are difficult, when you're suffering, it's easy to hit your knees. It's easy to get before the Lord and cry out to him because you feel the desperation. But what I do oftentimes is when I'm doing well, when internally things start to be, be, be going well and, and I'm, I'm kind of feeling like things are good and I've got this, I begin to kind of forget and to, to go to my knees and, and prayer becomes something that kind of falls by the wayside. And so James says, don't forget to sing praise when things are good for you, when, when you are doing well. And so what's important for us to notice about this is really what James is saying to us is be in conversation with God regardless, period. No matter what your life looks like, no matter how you feel inside, regardless of your circumstances, pray. Be in conversation with God. And the reason why I think he tells us that is because prayer is not about getting things from God. It is about being with God, and it's about talking to God. That's what prayer is. It's communication. It's a relational thing. It's not vending machine where you put in your prayers and out pops the thing that you want. That's not what prayer is about. You see, God wants to be with us, and so he calls us to pray. Think about that for a second. The God of the universe wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with me. He cares about what's going on in your heart and what's going on in my heart. He cares about the difficulties that you face. He's compassionate, and he wants you to talk to him about it. I hope that this truth instills worship in us, and it instills a desire for us to be with God in prayer. Because I'll be honest, a lot of times prayer to me feels like an obligation. It's really sad. I hate that. I hate that sometimes it's something that I feel like, oh, it's just something good Christians do, and you're a pastor, so you better pray. But then there are times in my life when I feel like God just grabs a hold of me and prayer becomes just unavoidable. It's just natural because what's going on in our relationship, I just want to be with him. And my prayer for us as a church is that that would increasingly be true of us, that we would be people that recognize God loves us, he wants to be with us, and we want to be with him, and we want to love him in return. Our New Testament reading for today is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. And in verse 17, Paul says this. He says three simple words. Pray without ceasing. 
That is what I believe James is talking about. I think he agrees with Paul, and he's calling us to do the same. No matter what's going on, talk to God. He cares. He wants to hear from us. I want to recommend a book to you if you find prayer to be somewhat difficult. Um, one of the things that I've found in my life is when, I've, when I view prayer as just conversation, I can talk to God anytime and all the time. I can talk to God when I'm driving. Sometimes I need to talk to God when I'm driving because of the people who cut me off and are going 10 below the speed limit in front of me on 75. But I can talk to God when I'm walking. I can talk to God when I'm changing my daughter's diaper and she's trying to do somersaults and I'm like having to pin her with one arm and try to put the diaper on with the other. All of life is an opportunity to be with God and to talk with him. And there's a little book that really helped me kind of just embrace prayer as more of a lifestyle than like another thing on the list of what to do. And that book, you've pro- maybe you've heard of it, is called Practicing the Presence of God. And it's by a guy named Brother Lawrence. Um, it's about this thick. You could read it in an afternoon. Um, it's really, it's one of those classic books. You could probably go home or on your phone while I preach if you want to ignore me. You could get on Amazon right now and probably buy it for like $3. But here's a quote from the book that I like. It says this. It says, There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice it and experience it. The offer's on the table. That's what I love about this quote is the offer's on the table. God is waiting to hear from us. He's waiting to be with us. He's waiting to talk with us. But we'll never know what that's like unless we just do it. So it's there, but you can't experience it for yourself unless you just engage. So how does God want us to pray? That's our question today. The first answer that we find here is God wants us to pray to him personally in every situation. Pray to God personally in every situation. Look at verse 14 with me. He asks another question. He says at the beginning of 14, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone facing serious physical illness? He's talking about physical sickness. Not, not, this is not a broad kind of catch-all term like the suffering one was. This is talking about you're sick. Take the word at face value. Physically sick. James says, let him call for the elders Sorry, now I'm losing my place. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So it's kind of an interesting verse. When I read this, I don't know about you, but the question that pops in my mind is, what in the world is this oil about? Why are we anointing somebody with oil? Um, There are some people who would take the oil to be, the purpose of the oil to be medical, that somehow in some way it's supposed to be part of the healing. And yeah, there are some oils that provide some benefit, but I don't think that's what James is talking about. There are others like the early Greek church who believed that anointing people with oil was a sacrament, something that strengthened the body and the soul of the sick. So they're, they're saying it may not be providing something physically healing, but maybe spiritually healing. The oil itself is doing that. But I believe that the oil is a symbol. It's a symbolic thing, and it is a physical, visible expression of the spiritual, invisible prayers that are being offered to God by the elders on behalf of the person that they're praying over. I believe that the oil here demonstrates that the believer is being set apart and consecrated to God in prayer. It's it's just a way for this person to, to see and experience the reality that they are being 
ushered in at the feet of the Lord by the, by the men of the church. Look at verse, the first half of verse 15 with me. It says this. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So once the elders do that, once they go to where this person is, probably their home or the hospital, anoint them with oil, it says the Lord will save this person and raise them up. Now, sometimes we read the Bible and you're like, hold on a second. You just said it will save the person and God will raise them up. I don't know about you, but I read this and go, what about all those people that don't get saved? What about the people who don't get healed and things don't turn around? So what are we supposed to do with this? When the Bible conflicts with what we experience, we have to wrestle with that, right? Because we believe that the Bible is infallible, that it's correct, that it doesn't speak any lies. And so here's the way I understand this. The way I take this verse is that when God does decide to heal, when people do turn around and their situations do get better, the prayers of godly people are often instrumental in that healing. I want to be careful here. Without question, God is the one who heals. He is the one who does the healing. But at the same time, one of the means by which he chooses to set healing in motion is the prayers of of the elders. And so, this is one of those situations where you kind of look at life, and you look at the scriptures, and you have to say, I don't really understand that, there's some mystery here, and go to what you know is true, and interpret experience in light of what is true. And here's some things I want to, that I would say that are true, that we can hang our hat on when we get to a verse like this that kind of throws us for a little bit of a curve. First of all, we know that God is absolutely sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He has the power to do everything, right? He created the world He had a virgin conceive and give birth to his son. Surely he can do anything. At the same time, what we also know is that God is absolutely free. And what I mean by that is he is not bound to anybody else. He can do whatever he pleases, and whatever he pleases is always right and loving. Okay? So we know that. Now what we also know is that God commands us to pray. He commands us to pray. And he says that when we do these things, he will act, and he will do these things, and he will respond accordingly. And so when you look at the scriptures and you see things and you see all of this stuff and it kind of collides and you can't make sense of it all, the thing that I think is the most appropriate to do is to take the black and white things, put those down before you and say, I believe all of this, and when it doesn't make sense to me, I will choose to believe it anyway and, and, and just confess that I don't have all the information, that God is mysterious, he's bigger than me, he's more, uh, more complex than my human, fallen, sinful mind can take, and let that be worship, rather than like, oh, I can't, expect, ex- I can't accept this, this can't be true, and just throw the truth aside. The better response for us when something like this comes our way is to let it instill worship, and to ask God to help us live within the tension of what we don't get. And at the end of the day, what it can do is it can drive us to our knees and it can drive us to a place where he reveals himself in new and profound ways if we'll lean in rather than just say, I don't get it, and start to give up. Now, this morning sermon is not apologetics. Mikkel, I don't know how I handled all of that on an apologetics level, but that's the way 
I view this verse is that what we know is that God calls us to pray for people when they're sick. He calls us when we're sick to call the elders to pray for us and that he says that he will use those prayers to bring his healing. Doesn't happen every time, but we know that he will honor these steps of obedience to his word. So the second way that we know God wants us to pray is that he wants us to ask the elders to pray to God for us when we're sick. To ask the elders to pray to God for us when we're sick. Okay, let's look at the last part of verse 15. So he says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up. And then this is the part I want to look at. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I want to talk about this for a second. What this means is that if the person's illness happens to be due to sin, the elder's prayer can bring forgiveness over that sin. Now, what we're supposed to take away from this is that some illness is due to sin. It is possible for our sin to bring sickness to us. It is possible. While that is true, it does not mean that all illness is due to sin. That's really important. Some of it could be, but not all of it is. Okay? So hear me out on this. One of the most damaging things that people have done in the name of Christ is to tell people that they are sick because of their sin. As one of the most evil, wicked, damaging things you can do is to pretend that you have the mind of God and you know that somebody's illness is due to sin. We don't know why people get sick. Some of the godliest people on earth get struck with some of the worst illnesses imaginable. So what this text communicates is that it is possible for our sin to bring on sickness, but it's not always the case. And here's the thing. None of us knows. We don't have that knowledge. We don't have that access to the secret heart and will of God. And so don't ever assume that you know that somebody's sin is due to or sickness is due to sin, and tell them that. That is not helpful, not healthy. Let God deal with that. If, it's, if somebody's sickness is due to sin, I believe God is probably strong enough, I mean, he is strong enough, and he probably will make that known in a way that they need to be told that, and it's probably not you or me. Actually, I'm going to say that. It is not you or me. So let's be careful with that. We are not the direct mouthpiece of God. But James says, because some illness is due to sin, in the last part of this verse, he says, if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. And so the elder's prayer can bring forgiveness in that situation. And then look at verse 16. Because this is true, because it's possible for sickness to be due to sin, James tells us to respond this way. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because sin can bring illness or sickness, confess it. Confess it. Now this is one of the hardest things to obey in all of the scriptures because confessing sin can often be really scary. Nobody really looks forward to having to admit the dark, nasty stuff in their heart or in their life to other people. Most of us well, I'll say many of us, are afraid to confess our sin because we're afraid of what people are going to think. We're afraid of what people might say. We're afraid of people, how they're going to respond. And so we just avoid confessing altogether. We just don't even do it. Now, here's something I want to 
say about this that I think might help us move in the direction of actually obeying this text and being people who confess our sins. First of all, I don't think we have to confess our sins to anyone and everyone. That's not what this text is about. But what I do think it is communicating is that every single one of us, myself, you, all of us here, do need someone that we can confess our sin to. We need someone. It may be one person that we allow into our life that we have such a relationship of confidence, trust, and safety where they are able to hear everything. The stuff that's in here, the stuff that's in here, or the stuff that actually manifests itself in our life. Every single one of us would do really, really well for ourselves, for God, for the kingdom, if we would be people who have one person who is a safe person to confess to. Because here's what happens when we confess our sin. It takes those things that are in the secret and in the darkness, and it drags them out into the light, and it dispels all of the power that secret sin can have. It takes away all of the shame and guilt that we just live in day by day, and and when we get that out, and we receive love and grace and mercy and compassion instead of condemnation from somebody, i.e., listen to those words, that's the kind of person that you can confess to, what it teaches us is that though we feel like trash because of the stuff that's in our mind, in our heart, or in our life, that, that response of that brother or sister that we just confess to, who gives us love on the heels of confession instead of condemnation, teaches us in a tangible way how God views us if we're his children. When we sin, he's not ready to bring the lightning bolt of judgment. He's not ready to bring a bucket of his wrath. We get to experience right there in that moment God loves me just the same when I'm at my worst. He loves me just the same even when I've gone back to the vomit for the thousandth time. And all of that's because of who we are in Christ, because of what he's done for us. We sang about it earlier in one of the songs. I don't remember the line. You'll have to help me out here. But yeah, in in Christ Alone, uh, we talk about the wrath of God being satisfied all of the judgment, all of the, the, the penalty for our sin was completely consumed in Christ, by Christ on the cross. If we truly believe that, we can confess our sin to God and to other people because our sin doesn't define us anymore. What Jesus has done defines us. His life, his death in our place on the cross and his resurrection gives us the freedom to not be defined by our sin. And so we can confess it because it's not who we are ultimately. It's part of our experience. It's going to happen while we're here on the earth living in these redeemed but not yet fully sanctified and glorified bodies. This side of eternity, we will battle with it, but it doesn't define us. We're defined by our identity in Christ. We're God's children. I'm his son. You're his sons and daughters. And that gives us freedom to be able to confess. So I don't know if you've experienced it firsthand, but what I have observed in my 14 months of being here is that this church is a safe place for you to pursue relationships that could lead to confession. The people here, in my firsthand experience, really do love one another. And my hope is that each and every one of us would be developing relationships here at Skillman so that if we don't have a person that we can confess to, God would build a relationship with someone right here in our midst that we could have a safe place to deal with the sin that's in our lives and in our hearts. 
And so my, my encouragement to you is, I know this stuff doesn't microwave and you don't just automatically have these deep relationships and it's like now, you know, you meet somebody on one Sunday, the next Sunday you're confessing your deepest, darkest skeletons in your closet. I don't think it happens like that. There's a progress. But my encouragement to you is, if you don't have that in your life, lean in and, and ask God to provide that and watch what happens over six months, a year, a year and a half, two years. Maybe, just maybe, he will answer the the prayer, if you ask him to provide this, because anytime God wants us to do something, he'll give us the means to be able to do it. And he wants us to confess. So I believe that if you ask God to give you somebody that's safe for you to confess to, he'll do that. So James doesn't just tell, tell us to confess to one another. The last, the, the last thing that he tells us to do here is he says, he also tells us to pray for one another. So if we're going to be the men and women of God that we want to be, that God wants us to be, and if we're going to be the church that God wants Skillman Bible Church to be, it is going to happen as we pray for one another. And this is, the kind of prayer here is, is intercession. It's having somebody's back, going to the Lord on their behalf. Sometimes we're so weak, sometimes we're so confused, sometimes we're so distraught that we don't even know how to pray, we don't even know what to pray, sometimes we don't even feel like we can pray. And what we have the privilege of doing as the church is praying for people when they're not even able to pray for themselves. Maybe they're just going through something where their faith is really, really rocky. We can come around one another and hold each other up and ask God to do a work in each other's lives so that our faith stays intact, so that we can move forward and remain steadfast in Christ. We've got to beg God to show up and do for us and for one another what we can't do for ourselves. Now, we may not be able to solve one another's problems, but we can do something that is more powerful, and that is pray for one another. And when we do, we're calling upon a God who has the ability to redeem, to heal, to change any situation. And I believe that he will honor our obedience when it comes to this. So how does God want us to pray? He wants us to also confess our sins to one another, and he wants us to intercede for one another. He wants us to confess our sins to one another and intercede for one another. See how we're doing on time. Okay. So we're going to look at the last part of verse 16 through the end of 18 real quick, and then talk about that, and we'll we'll, uh, wrap up here. But in verse 16, the last part of that, he says this. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he gives an example. He gives an illustration. In verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So when we read this, there's a lot here that, that to me is just kind of like, whoa. I mean, somebody praying for no rain and it doesn't rain for three years? I mean, that's just crazy. I want to back up a little bit, though. Let's, let's look back at verse 16. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, if you're like me, when you read this and you see Elijah, what you probably do is you identify a righteous person as like those people that occupy Hebrews 11, Elijah and Abraham and Noah and all these guys who did crazy things, like just really wacky, like over-the-top 
powerful things, and then you're like, there's no way, that's, that, that's not me. That will never be me. I just don't have that kind of direct line to God. That's how I read that. But notice that he says, a righteous person, he, well, he says in verse uh, 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I think that's really important as we define who a righteous person is because I don't think it's a super spiritual person. I believe it's someone who really believes that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. That's how I would define the righteous person here. Somebody who takes God at his, as, as, at his word, believes he is who he says he is, and that he can do what he says he will do or can do. And so that is true of Elijah, but, it, but I mean, his point there when he says he was a man with a nature just like ours lets us know that there wasn't like something inherently special about Elijah. I mean, he wasn't like Jesus. He wasn't fully God and fully man. He was just a dude who God used in some powerful ways. And just as a side note, David is somebody who did crazy things, right? Killed like a giant dude and then all these armies. If you go back and look at David's story, David never did any of that crazy stuff until God's spirit came upon him and empowered him to do that. And so, what I, what I believe about Elijah's story and how it relates to us is that Elijah was just an ordinary guy. He was just an ordinary person. But what was different about Elijah, maybe, than other people, is that he had this extraordinary life because, although he was just ordinary, he had a faith that was extraordinary, and his faith was in an all-powerful God, and, and he just took God at his word, really believed that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he will do, and he lived his life like that. And so the, the, the point of that is that if God is the one who was doing all of these things in Elijah's life, if it was his faith in God that made the difference, the offer is on the table for us to be people who God uses to pray prayers that are powerful, that do powerful things. We, you know, one way I think I read this verse as well is, for me, I'm just going to always come back to the gospel and come back to who Christ is, what he's done for us, and how that changes us. And here's what I also thought whenever I was studying this this week. If you think about it, when it says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it is working, every single person in here who's placed our faith in Jesus, God says that we're righteous. He says that we are righteous, not when we feel righteous, not when we get our stuff together, but because of our faith in Jesus, God has taken our sin, given it to Christ, taken Christ's righteousness, given it to us, and we are righteous. Whether or not we like it, whether or not we feel like it, we are righteous. And so we have already been, been given the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith. So God sees us as people who are righteous, and we can trust that his, he will answer our prayers that our prayers, because of Christ, have the power to be, make a difference. They have the ability to be powerful because of who Christ is, what he's done for us, and because of who God is. So we have the ability, you have it, I have it, to be people who pray prayers that are powerful, that make a difference. The question is, do we want to pray like that? Do we want to believe it and engage in it? Do we want to take God on his, up on his word and do something about it? Will we believe that he wants to use us to pray prayers that make a difference? 
I want to close quickly with a, with a story, somewhat of a story, but um, many of you have been around Skillman for a while, know about Mrs. Smiley. Those of us that are newer, I, don't, I never met her. I don't know a lot about her, but um, she's kind of a legend around this place. Um, she was a lady that was a huge part of Skillman for a really long time. And from what I know, Kay's told me this, she was a prayer warrior. She was just one of those people, like, I've heard you would be talking to Miss Smiley and she would just start praying in the middle of conversation. Like, no, no, no warning, just, oh, how are you doing? Oh, Lord, I just pray for so-and-so. Just in and out of prayer. That's the way that she lived her life. And, pray, and Kay also told me that she had this, this extensive, like, file that she kept people's names and prayer requests in. And, like, once you made it into the file, like, you never got out. It was like you were going to be prayed for until the day that she was no longer here. And so a lunch bunch a few weeks back, I had the privilege of sitting down with our missionary who was here, uh, David Sedlicek and his wife and their son. And we were talking and I was asking him, he was telling me a little bit about Skillman when they arrived here in Dallas to go to school at DTS. This was in the late 80s, early 90s. And he said he shows up and it's like less than 20 people here. It's a pretty small group of folks. And, uh, but what he... What he proceeded to tell me was that over the next few years while they were here in Dallas, God just started doing powerful stuff. Like, people who were really far from Christ started showing up here, and people were loving on them and praying for them and welcoming them and embracing them. And before they knew it, the church was growing, and not by just sheep swapping, but actual conversions, people coming to, come, coming to faith in Christ right here in this place. And so David's telling me that, and being a pastor who's always thinking of like the game plan side of things too, um, I was just like, what's the secret? I got to know. And he was like, prayer. This was a place that was committed to prayer. People were just honest, honest, hardcore prayer warriors. He's like, there was this little group of old ladies that just prayed all the time and God used it and he started building his church. And so I just... I. I don't know about you, but I hear that story and, like, my heart rejoices for God's work in that day. I mean, some of us may not be here. Like, maybe the church would have closed its doors if those people weren't committed and didn't stick with it. Who knows? But I'm so excited as I look back at that and see how God used our church to make a difference in our community, to see people come to faith in Christ. And my heart just says, why not again? Why not do that now? Why not today in our era in our time while we're here why not see people come to faith in jesus why not see families that are broken be restored why not see lives that are in disarray and just completely torn up put back together made new in christ i would love to see that happen i'd love to see god's reputation increase right here as our mission statement says And I believe that if that's going to happen, it starts with prayer. So God wants us to pray to him personally in every situation. He wants to ask the elders to pray to God for us when we are sick. And he wants us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, intercede for one another. So my question for you today is, will you join me in being a person who's committed to prayer? I don't mean that you have to commit to four hours a day. I'm just asking, will you join me and asking God, declaring before him, God, I want to be somebody whose life is marked by a continual conversation with you. My second question is, 
Do you want to be a church that makes a difference in our community? Because if we do, I believe that it will start with being a church that is committed to praying for one another and praying for those who are right here around us who aren't here yet, that God would bring them here and that he would give us the ability to love them in such a way that they experience the love and hope found only in Christ and that that changes their life. Let's pray.